Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Cynthia Molabita is a professor of Christian ethics and author of the book uh, most recently, Resisting Structural Evil, Love as Ecological Economic Vocation. She gave a lecture yesterday at USU in the Tanner Talk series from the College of Humanities and uh, Social Sciences. Central tenet of uh, Dr. Molabita's work is that the increasingly pressing situation of planet Earth poses urgent ethical questions. In her view, the Earth crisis cannot be understood apart from the larger human crisis, economic equity. Racial justice, social values, human purpose are bound up with the planet's survival. And uh, Dr. Molabita, as I mentioned, uh, was on the USU campus, remains on the USU campus, because she joins us in studio uh, today uh, to talk about uh, these issues. Uh, Dr. Molabita, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for having me. Uh, Cynthia Molabita uh, currently holds a joint appointment at Pacific Lutheran Theological Seminary and a Church Divinity School of the Pacific. Previously, she taught Christian ethics at Seattle University's School of Theology and Ministry and Department of Theology and uh, Religious Studies. A previous book is called uh, Healing a Broken World. And so we're going to talk about these issues. We're also joined by uh, Reverend Scott Thaliker from Prince of Peace Lutheran Church uh, in Logan. Reverend Thaliker, welcome to the program. Good to be here, Tom. I'm a longtime listener, and I'm excited to be part of it. Oh, it's it's good to have you have you with us uh, uh, today. Um, so uh, let me start with uh, Dr. Molabita. Interesting lecture yesterday, and uh, grateful that you were able to come to the USU uh, campus. I wonder how you got into uh, these issues. Mm-hmm. I guess it, it's a wide world, mm-hmm. Christian ethics. Mm-hmm. Why did you? Wh- how did you gravitate toward mm-hmm. uh, connections with uh, with environment and uh, economic justice? Yeah, that's a good question. I, uh, I'm not totally sure, but uh, I think it began when I was about 14, and I saw a film. And the film was called Guess Who's Coming to Breakfast, and it depicted the tremendous exploitation and suffering of workers in a Latin American country as a result of the the businesses, the the U.S.-owned businesses that brought us our cheap fruits and sugars in our breakfast cereal, uh, etc. In other words, I saw the connection between our consumption and other people's poverty, and it really devastated me. I just had, it, it seemed so wrong that some people could accumulate wealth over other people's suffering. So that started me on a path um, that took me through college and then to Latin America to work um, as a healthcare worker. And there again, I kept encountering this connection between what we consume in the high consuming world and others' poverty. I remember mothers, I was in healthcare, and I remember babies being born severely malnourished because their mothers couldn't get enough food. And they were hardworking, and all they needed was un perecito de tierra, a little piece of earth. But instead, the earth that could have been growing their food was owned by um, foreign cattle companies. And I remember, uh, so I kept encountering people throughout the years that made these connections to me. Um, one of the Jesuit priests in El Salvador, I I brought delegations of people to Latin America when I was the director of the East Coast Office of the Center for Global Education at Augsburg College. And um, John Sabrino, one of the Jesuit priests, said, in El Salvador, poverty means death. 
And people here aren't poor by accident. They're poor because of the systems that make you all rich. Mm. And these kinds of encounters, um, a, uh, I remember a strawberry picker who, without any kind of malice but with fierce honesty, said to a delegation that I was leading. It was a delegation of local elected officials from the U.S. And she said, our children go hungry because... This land grows strawberries for your tables, and it should grow corn and beans for us. Mm -hmm. And um, throughout Africa and throughout India also, these experiences kept happening for me. And I knew I had been raised as a Christian. I am a Christian. And if I know anything, it's that human beings are supposed to live in ways that allow others to flourish as well as oneself. Um, and we know that in the Christian tradition as the call to love neighbor as self. And these connections that linked our massive overconsumption to other people's suffering is not neighbor love at all. And I knew that my work needed to somehow address that. Mm. So I think that's... And then about 10 years ago, I started seeing the even scarier connections with climate change. Um, and I learned, again, working, I was invited to India to work on eco-justice issues. And the church in India taught me that there are now 25 million climate refugees, and uh, most of them Africans and Asians. And uh, I learned that one of the worst impacts of climate change is and will be increased hunger and starvation through drought and displacement and rising seas. Um, I learned that a quarter of, African, of, of Africa's people will be threatened by rising seas and large swaths of Bangladesh. And I just am convicted that this is a tremendous moral problem of enormous weight because they are not causing climate change. It is the high-consuming world, and that is us, mm -hmm. that is causing climate change. So I really have um, come to see that really the great moral challenge of our day, of, of my generation and the student generation coming up, is to do something to halt, excuse me, not to halt climate change, we can't do that, but to mitigate and decrease and vastly, vastly change the way we live so that we're not continuing to emit greenhouse gases that that are causing the climate to um, to change such that if things go on as they are, human beings won't. Mm. But um, we we are faced with a with the greatest challenge to the call to love mm. that humankind may ever have known. Mm. I'm going to follow up with that. I want to turn to Reverend Thalaker here. Um, so uh, Dr. Molabita is framing this, Reverend, in, you know, as a moral question. And we, we're, I think we're used to uh, seeing this as a scientific question um, and, uh, you know, or a political question right. or in the realm of economics. Right. But uh, she's, she's linking all of this and linking it back to love thy neighbor and right. uh, ethics, morals, religion. Yeah, a connection here for me is the way that in Christianity in the United States, and this is the you know part of the church that I grew up in, uh, Christianity 
easily becomes a more personalized religion, and it's sort of about me and Jesus or about my congregation and Jesus. And it's clear when you read the Bible and encounter the wider Christian church on earth that that's a limiting view of what, uh, of what faith is really about. Um, and so for me, the connection here becomes really obvious, and you see very obviously the way that uh, just uh, my... Um, my avoidance of the real ethical demands of Christianity is manifested in North American faith. Mm. Dr. Molavita, um, so you're saying the effects of climate change, for example, mm-hmm. and you said this in your lecture, are not suffered equally, nor are the causes equal, mm-hmm. um, and that you and I are complicit. We're, mm-hmm. we're living in a very rich society, uh, mm-hmm. we're reaping the benefits mm-hmm. from, uh, from globalization, so that I'm complicit yeah. in, in some ways in the, the poverty that you were describing, some yeah. of these other. Yeah. So how do, we, how do we live with that, mm. and, and what do we what do? We do? Mm. Well, uh, I, ask myself, <laughs> I ask myself that every day. Um, I am conv- I think that the most common thing that we do is deny it and avoid it, and that we cannot do. Um, so there's really quite a, 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 a paradox, and that is that facing these realities is haunting. It, it's, it's, it's really quite tormenting to think that others suffer because of how we live. Even though we may be good and compassionate and decent and caring human beings, we may be people who would give our lives for someone else. And yet the impact of our collective lives, not through our intentions, but through the systems we're a part of, greatly damage other people. So uh, that can be haunting and we can try to run away from it. And I believe that the first step is to face that clearly, um, to face it and not run. And um, and I, yeah, so to face it and then think, how can we live differently? And I talk, I teach um people to try to see three things at one time. And one of those things is what is really going on, including our complicity in these kinds of structural, systemic, um, what I call systemic evil. Um, But the other, the second thing to see is to see alternatives, to see that other ways of living are possible, and to to become familiar with the movements of people in our own communities and worldwide that are really seeking different ways of living that are more economically just and racially just and also ecologically sustainable. And the third thing that I teach to see um, is the power and presence of that great mystery that we call God leading us from the way things are toward the way things ought be or could be. So I tell students, you, you must um, face with open eyes the systemic injustice of which you're a part, of which we are a part. And secondly, you need to see alternatives. And third, this, this presence of the sacred moving us. And there are amazing and life-giving alternatives um, emerging all around. Um, and... 
the, the change that we need is change in behaviors, individual behaviors, but also social structures. And, and I don't know how far you want me to, to talk into that, but um, I think we can talk about ch- addressing, looking for change. L- like, there's an ancient Chinese proverb that goes, if we do not change direction, we'll end up where we're headed. <laughs> and that is very real. So we can change direction by addressing, I see it as four different levels of social life, individuals and households and business. The corporate world has a tremendous role to play. The third level is um, institutions, our churches, our schools, our civil society institutions. And the fourth level is government, public policy, and that we need to be looking toward change on all those levels. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to go to break here pretty soon, but I, I wanted to uh, have you tell a story that you did. This is a, mm. an interesting story. Mm. Uh, and it gets to uh, what holding hope and despair mm-hmm. in your in, and you encourage us to hold those mm. both in our in our minds and hearts at the same time, mm. right? And, of course, lean toward hope. Mm-hmm. You told a story that you were living in Seattle. Mm. And I think you met this this gentleman, a, a, a Lutheran pastor, who mm. would go out in a small boat mm. as a part of a flotilla, right, mm-hmm. to protest mm-hmm. against the nuclear submarines that were yeah. coming in and out. Could you tell us that story? Yes, uh, sure. I was a young person, maybe 20, 21, 22, something like that. And I was filled with despair about systemic injustice. And I thought I need to talk with someone who knows systemic injustice, but has hope. So I went to talk with the one person I could think of who was a Lutheran pastor. And he, I said, where do you find hope in the midst of the economic and and various forms of injustice. And he said, you know, Cindy, I know the end of the story. And by this, he meant his conviction as a Christian that the love of God will surmount and reign over all else, that ultimately the love of God will bring life abundant for all in some way that we don't fully understand and that our calling in life is it's not to let God make that happen. It's to be God's hands and feet, to to work towards a world in which all people can flourish as well as earth. And this man um, had his hope. I think that was his conviction. That was his faith. And that has given me, that is the center of my life. I believe that fully. And it it pushes me to do all that I can do. Um, but I was moved also by his activism in his efforts to be a part of bringing, of being God's hands and feet on earth. And one of the things that he had done regularly is be part of the protests against the nuclear trident submarines that were coming across Puget Sound, the water body by Seattle. So he would be out in a tiny little boat um, with a few other little boats trying to block the submarines. And uh, the day that, and then the Coast Guard would come along and try to squirt the, the protesters out of their boats. And when the Coast Guard came to squirt them out of, 
uh, him out of his boat, he happened to be with his 80-year-old mother. <laughs> and his 80-year-old mother jumped up, waved her American flag and said, not in my America, you won't. <laughs> and um, actually, the Coast Guard didn't squirt them off the boat. Mm-hmm. But I, I thought that he was a beautiful model of having his ultimate and complete hope in the promises of God and wedding that to his complete commitment to to dedicate his life to seeking that abundant life for all. Mm. Yeah. Let me uh, pose this question first to Reverend Faldeker, and then I'll come back mm. to Dr. Molobita. Uh, so that's uh, the, the, the reaction to hope mm-hmm. was based in his religious faith, right? Mm-hmm. But one way you could go with religious faith, and I, I believe I've talked to people who, who've expressed this point of view, is that the, the hope is, is rooted in God. God will make all things right. Therefore, I don't need to do anything. Yeah, I, I think that that's definitely a danger. That's certainly something Lutherans, I think, have been accused of uh, over the years. And, you know, if you look at the events leading up to World War II, obviously the Lutheran Church played a significant role in some of those events. Um, and so uh, there has been some renewal around some of these issues. Uh, and I think it, it's easy for, like you say, Christian faith to be, or any faith, to be just a, a sort of a passive thing, relying on God, that God will sort this all out. Um, but in fact, when we read the Bible, when we understand the tradition, when you talk to Christians globally, it's clear that what the Christian faith is about is grounding life in this world. Uh, and so the, the story that we in the Christian church orient our lives around is the story of God fully coming into the world and, and joining the world in this person of Jesus Christ. And so we say that the place that God is most fully revealed is in Jesus' suffering and death on the cross. Uh, fully entering the difficulties, the complexities, the political nature, the economic nature, uh, the brokenness of our life together in our world. Uh, And so for us, this isn't just about God fixing this, but this is about the way that God enters our world and calls us to join together with God's work. Mm -hmm. Dr. Molobita, you know, the same 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 question, and I'm sure you've heard this from from religious people that some religious people that uh, I don't have to worry. I can live my life. God will take care of this all in the end. This is definitely was not the attitude of this particular man that you talked to. So, what's the argument on the other side that that I need to be involved because of my religious faith? Yeah, I I would say there are a couple things I would say about that. One is. I need to be involved because the fundamental moral and spiritual calling in, of to human beings mm-hmm. from the God we know um, through Jesus, but not only through Jesus. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say that I am one who firmly believes in the the profound validity of other religious traditions. And I, sec- also, I would second that. He yeah. would second that. Yeah. Uh, uh, there are many ways to know this great, amazing, radiant, um, uh, loving beyond our imagining uh, reality that is God. And one of them is the Christian faith tradition. And in 
so let me let me say that. But I would say one of the gifts, all religious traditions have gifts. One that, that Christianity has brought, or two, are this idea that Reverend Thalaker noted of incarnation, that God became flesh in incarnation, in in incarnate, and and that God became flesh in the form of Jesus and in the form of us living today, that we are to embody the the great gift of the love of God is that we are called to receive it and trust it and relish it and know that it surmounts all else. And then we are called to embody it, to live it into the world. And the, uh, the other gift that, that Judaism brought, and that, of course, Jesus was a Jew, um, and Jesus taught this, um, but, but with Judaism came this understanding that love is not just a, a feeling or a niceness or a smiling. Love really seeks justice for those who are oppressed. And we see that throughout the Hebrew scriptures that are, that's the Christian Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, profoundly part of our scriptures, that love does not just mean being nice. Love means where systemic injustice is beating people down that love seeks to undo that injustice. And that's ultimately the meaning of the cross, is uh-huh. a sort of a, not just a personal thing that Jesus somehow forgives my personal sin, but is entering in in some form of protest into the heart of our world to stand up for love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Molabita, you just following up briefly on this, and yes. then, I, then I want to, uh, to talk a little bit about um, coalition building. Yes. Because, uh, you know, part of our audience today will be yes. religious, people of faith, mm. and then part mm. will, will not be, mm. but, but sharing some of the same concerns that you're mm. talking about. But first of all, you, you say love in the biblical sense is a wild idea, mm. you said mm-hmm. in your lecture. Yes. It, it, you know, radical, mm-hmm. that if you take love thy neighbor and extend mm-hmm. that, you might find yourself in territory you didn't expect mm. yourself to end up in. Um. Actually, yes, love is a wild idea, <laughs> and we could talk a lot about that. I'll have you. I'll tell people they should read my book, "Resisting Structural Evil." It deals with love, but one of the one of the features of love is that it serves the well-being of whomever is loved, and a second feature um, is that, as I said before, where. The, the the Well, a second feature is that love pertains to whomever my life touches. So my life touches the people in the sweatshops who made my clothes, the strawberry picker who picked the strawberries. My life touches the people who are impacted by the climate change that, that I am a part of causing. So love is, um, is wild in that sense. And as I said before, it calls us to address the injustice that is beating down the, the neighbor, the loved. So this makes it a wild idea. It also is fascinating in that the biblical call to love is also a call to love self, a love thy neighbor as thyself, which can also be translated from the Greek as love thy neighbor as God loves. Um, so it presupposes deep self-respect, self-honoring, and to me that's very important um, as an eco-feminist theologian to acknowledge that we are not only called to love neighbor, we are also called to honor and respect and love ourselves. Um, so those, uh, and I think another wild dimension of, uh, when I teach about love, I try to 
sometimes ask students not to use the word love because we're talking about love as a norm that comes out of Jewish and Christian and Muslim traditions um, and has corollaries in other traditions, say the Buddhist tradition that uses the word compassion. Um, But it's not a lot like the kind of love we see on a Hallmark card. So I try to take... um, have them make up a different word or use the Greek word to try to grapple with these implications for this as the guiding mode of life. I I think the other thing that strikes me as life-giving about the call to love is that at least in, in, in Christianity as I know it through the Lutheran lens, we do not love in order to win God's, God's, um, approval or favor or salvation. We don't love others in order to get into heaven. Um, In my tradition, we believe deeply and fully that God's love for us is not dependent upon our being good or doing the right thing or loving others. God's love for us is unconditional, profound, and unchangeable. This became so real to me that all are beloved and by God— this became so real to me at one point in my life when, actually when my mother was murdered. Um, my mother was murdered by three men um, in a very brutal way. And I remember, even in all of the horror of that, I remember knowing that those men were beloved by God and God would ultimately in some way find them, that they were saved by God, ultimately were embraced by God, um, as well as knowing that my mother had been embraced and, and loved by God even through that horrible ordeal. And I say that just because I, I do not want to give the impression that that I think that we are to love others and, and, and struggle against injustice just to win our way into heaven. Because I don't believe that. I believe that that is, is given to us. Um, but we are called, some would say, out of a grateful response to God's love for us to to serve the well-being of the other, that is to love. Uh, another way to understand that for me is that not only are we called to respond in grateful response, but we are we embody um, that, that, that the spirit of God lives within um, human beings as a power of love. Now, I also believe that the Spirit of God lives within the entire created world, and we could talk about that too. I believe that that God, and I've learned this from Martin Luther, who says amazing things about um, that Christ fills all things, even the tiniest leaf, I'm quoting him there, or all creatures are filled with God. So I believe we have a tremendous um, feast uh, of new understanding to gain as people living now to come to know better the presence of the great sacred within the created world mm. and how it can um, can feed and nurture us and our moral power for living rightly on this earth. Mm. Yeah, if you've never felt loved by a tree, you need to get out into Logan oh. Canyon. <laughs> mm. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I think that's the response of a lot of people. You know, that's that's mm-hmm. that's why they get into some of these these issues. Before we go on, uh, Dr. Yes. Malabita, um, I, I I just want to follow up uh, here. Mm-hmm. That's an extraordinary, horrible experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. with with your mother. 
uh, sorry for your loss mm. there. Your response, uh, you know, uh, you hear of some people who mm. have the response that you did. You hear mm. of uh, the understandable other response, mm. you know, vengeance and uh, mm. never forgiven. You, you can you can understand that response. How do you how do you get to the response that you did? Um, well, I, I actually haven't talked a lot. <laughs> I've never talked publicly like this about my mother's death, um, and partly because I I don't really I I think I completely understand a vengeance response, um, and I don't in any way put that down. I I think it was a gift. I think we were just um, blessed. I think it was a gift. I, I don't think I did anything to get to that place. But I do know that it was a truth and a real thing that I experienced, that, um, that God's love embraced all, including those men. But I can't tell you why or how that happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, let's take a break. I've been promising a break for about 10 minutes now. So let's, uh, let's <laughs> okay. uh, take a break. Then we come back. I want to talk about, uh, there's a, a provocative uh, statement um, that you make, Dr. Molabita, in, in your book. The current economic system will not continue. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, it's not an if, it's not uh-huh. a if we do these things, it's a will not continue. So I want to talk about the current system, the problems of the current system, why you think it will not mm-hmm. continue. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about coalition building, a few other things as well when we come back. And we have an interesting uh, email, a question from uh, Glenn. Uh, who has emailed us to upraxcess at gmail.com, who will get us into, I'll just give you a taste of his question, um, his first sentence. At the risk of sounding inflammatory, I found myself bristling about the word ethics used in conjunction with the word Christian. So this will take us in an unexpected direction, but I, th- I think some a fruitful discussion. So thanks for that. We'll get to your email, Glenn, and we'll get to much more. We're talking with the Reverend Scott Thaliker, who is uh, pastor at uh, Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Logan, and with Dr. Cynthia Lamolabida, professor of Christian ethics. She has a joint appointment at Pacific Lutheran Theological Seminary and Church Divinity School of the Pacific. And uh, she is on the USU campus. She gave a lecture yesterday in the USU uh, Tanner Talk series from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cache Valley Center for the Arts presenting The Hillbenders, Tommy, a bluegrass opry. A full-length bluegrass tribute featuring banjo, dobro, mandolin, bass, and guitar to the Who's Tommy. Tuesday, April 11th at 7.30 p.m. Details at cashearts.org. And Cash Valley Center for the Arts presenting Broadway's Next Hit Musical on tour from New York City. An improvised comedy musical awards show featuring singing, acting, dance, and piano created from audience suggestions. Wednesday, April 19th at 7.30 p.m. Details at cashearts.org. This is Science by the Slice. The common side-blotched lizard, which can survive up to seven years, is found throughout the deserts of the western United States and Mexico. USU ecologist Susanna French is exploring environmental effects on the reptile, which grows up to six inches in length. The lizard is very territorial and has variable lifespans across its range, she says, which enables researchers to track individuals. French is investigating whether environmental changes, including those caused by human disturbances, result in modifications to the lizard's stress responsiveness, reproductive success, and immune function. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. 
Details at usu.edu slash science. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, we are talking with Cynthia Molabita. She's a professor of Christian ethics, author of the book most recently, Resisting Structural Evil, Love as Ecological Economic Vocation. She gave a lecture yesterday uh, at USU in the Tanner Talks series from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. And she has lectured or consulted in Africa, Asia, Europe, Latin America, many parts of North America on theology and matters of climate justice, economic justice, environmental racism, global uh, economic globalization, moral agency, public church, and ecofeminist uh, theology. And uh, she holds a, a joint appointment to Pacific Lutheran Theological Seminary and Church Divinity School of the Pacific. We're also joined by Reverend Scott Thaliker, pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Logan. A central tenet of Dr. Molabita's work is that the increasingly pressing situation of planet Earth poses Earth urgent ethical questions. In her view, the Earth crisis cannot be understood apart from the larger human crisis. Economic equality, racial justice, social values, and human purpose are bound up with the planet's survival. And as I mentioned, the latest book, Resisting Structural Evil, Love as an Ecological Economic Vocation. You can join us here in this conversation. I hope that you will at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. I want to get to some uh, interesting questions related to uh, some of these uh, uh, topics of ethics and in the environment. But uh, first of all, we want to uh, go to Glenn's uh, question by email, and uh, here is his uh, email. Hello. At the risk of sounding inflammatory, I find myself bristling about the word ethics used in conjunction with the word Christian. A little background for full disclosure. I was raised LDS in Utah. I'm a return missionary, yada, yada. I have since become a nunner, having no affiliation with organized religion. A watershed moment in the process toward my current religious status was when a group of Jehovah's Witnesses came to my door. They asked me if one of their one of their questions, which were designed to promote further discussion, it was, Glenn, would a true Christian kill another person? Without missing a beat, I answered yes. I was thinking about World War II as a primary example. He asked again with emphasis, a true Christian, Glenn? I knew what he was trying to say, and I had to agree with the point that a true Christian, quote-unquote, would not kill anyone, let alone other, another Christian. Well, that brought me to a bigger point. Are there any true Christians? Furthermore, many fairly evil, nefarious, conspiratorial, etc. things are regularly, if not routinely, justified through religion. This is not just a Christian propensity, I will admit. Human nature is what it is. I feel bad excoriating people who have a deep commitment to their faith, but I sense that using Christianity or any other religious basis as a motivator for social good has proven itself to be at best impotent and more a device of control at the whims of those who wield it. It has proved itself to be such for millennia. I feel more badly for people who have been persecuted by a whimsical and widely interpreted cluster of dogmas. I see Christian ethics as being extremely ephemeral, extremely debatable, and by virtue of its history, wholly ineffectual. That is Glenn. So thanks for that, Glenn. Uh, raises some interesting points. We have some uh, people of faith in studio who can respond. Uh, let's start with Reverend Thalker. Well, first of all, Glenn, thank you for the great question. Uh, I want to say that I am completely sympathetic to what he says. And, you know, I receive with... Uh, with humility and and I see the wisdom in 
what I would describe maybe as the materialist critique of religion. You know, the Marxist critique that religion is the opiate of the masses and that it's really just uh, a mask for these systems of power that oppress people. I certainly have seen that personally. I think globally, people globally, Christians that I know globally have seen that even more. And I certainly would not blame anyone who opts out of religion and who sees this as a fight not worth fighting. There are those of us who remain within. Uh, And one of the other things I would raise, you know, when you look at the history of the 20th century, you see some of the ways, and as a Lutheran particularly, I brought this up earlier, um, you know, through the lens of what happened in uh, Germany and surrounding areas in the Lutheran Church supporting the rise of Nazism. Um, we've seen some of the real negative effects. The flip side, I think, is that you can say that about a lot of other institutions as well. You can say that about government, um, about the state. You can say that about science and reason even, um, that these things are tools that can be used for great good or for great evil. Uh, And so the question is, how we'll wield these? And I think there's a form of escapism possible here where we try to just say, well, you know, government, you know, look at the 20th century, government, the state has killed so many people, let's just do away with all government. Um, And one of the things I've appreciated about Dr. Mo Labida's perspective is the way that she avoids these kind of easy opt-out escapist answers, whether that's if we just build a big enough wall, we can isolate ourselves from the world, um, or or on the other hand, that we can just uh, escape and avoid having to deal with uh, the institutions that are... Uh, that our world is uh, is built around. Dr. Molabita, you're you're a professor of Christian ethics, so I'm 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 guessing you're going to hold a different viewpoint from from uh, Glenn's. Uh, what's what's your response to Glenn? Well, Glenn, uh, thank you for the honest question, um, and it does make me chuckle because I am a Christian ethicist. So, um, but no, your question is very real and very important. Um, I left the church for years. Um, for similar reasons, because I saw it as having betrayed all of the good that it was seeking to um, convey. Um, it betrayed it in the Inquisition, the conquest of the Americas, um, many, 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 many things. And I, I came back for a number of a number of things brought me back. And one was a man that I deeply respected, uh, that I, with whom I worked, an atheist, who said to me, "You know." He said, you know, Cynthia, you are one of the most least judgmental people I've ever met when it comes to interpersonal relations. Mm. Why can't you you forgive people? Why can't you forgive the church? He said to Mm. me, this atheist. And I thought, for heaven's sakes, he's absolutely right. The church is a human institution, though, Mm. though, though fed by and inaugurated by God, it's, it's full of fallible, finite human beings. That means we screw up a lot. Um, and then the second thing is I learned that the word tradition first in, in the New Testament was first used as a verb, not a noun, and it has two meanings. And one is to pass on to pass on, to witness to the gospel, the good news, the amazing reality of God's presence with us and love. And the second meaning of tradition is to betray. So when, in, when Judas betrayed Jesus into the hands of the Romans, the verb is tradition. So that just blew my mind. I thought, oh, the church in traditioning or passing on the gospel 
is also going to betray it. And that helped explain to me the ongoing ways in which the church messes up, which we do. And it explained to me that the passing on of the gospel is bigger and greater than the betrayal of it. And that in the church, we are to, I believe you cannot be faithful without being also critical of your religious tradition, whatever it is. So I critique Christianity even as I draw upon it. Because by critiquing, we can then keep from redoing the problems. And that is, Scott, Reverend Thaliker brought up the, the, the Christian complicity with fascism. We need to name that and critique it so to help us not be complicit with other forms of dominating power and oppressive power. Um, so, and as, as a Lutheran, for instance, when I draw upon Luther for his amazing ethic of neighbor love, including his radical economic ethics that, that challenged the rising capitalism of his day, um, and I could say more about that, I also critique Luther because he um, wrote some of the most vitriolic, for example, vitriolic writings against the Jews that history has ever known. So I have to say, what was going on? Why did he do that? How can that help us not um, betray other human beings like he betrayed the Jews and the Anabaptists and others? So I believe, Glenn, (laughs) that we must be firmly critical of our faith traditions and see the profound goodness and truth that they are seeking to communicate and live into that, even while acknowledging the betrayals. Um, uh, so thank you, Glenn. Appreciate it. Uh, uh, Glenn uh, often sends us very interesting questions that move the conversation forward. I'd appreciate, uh, appreciate your question uh, today as well, uh, Glenn. Uh, you can join the conversation as well if you would like to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or you can call us toll-free 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. We're talking with Cynthia Molabita, professor of Christian ethics, author of the most recent book, Resisting Structural Evil, Love as Ecological Economic Vocation. She gave a lecture yesterday at USU in the Tanner Talk series from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. We're also joined by Reverend Scott Thaliker of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church uh, in Logan. I want to uh, get to this uh, provocative statement, Dr. Molabita. I'll uh, get a response from you and then from Reverend Thaliker. You say the current economic system will not mm. continue. First mm. of all, what's, what's your critique of the current economic system? Well, when I make that statement, and I'm talking about advanced global capitalism, what some refer to as the neoliberal global economy, I am not, I'm not making that statement first and foremost as a critique from a moral or political perspective. I'm making this statement, although I do critique it, but the statement is grounded in physical reality. The earth as a biophysical system cannot continue to support the global economy as we know it. That is, and so that I'm making as a physical statement. That is why it won't continue as is into the future, regardless of what I think about the goodness or the badness of the of the global economy. And what I mean when I say the earth can't sustain it is that advanced global capitalism depends upon and expects certain things that the earth can't continue to do. One of those is maximizing growth. 
we aim at maximizing growth, make the economy grow. Um, maximizing growth depends upon um, tremendous fossil fuel um, use, um, transporting goods and services across the globe, um, for instance. The global economy also depends upon maximizing profit and third, maximizing consumption. And to, to maximize profit, and I'm not saying anything against profit. I do not critique profit. I'm critiquing the maximization of profit, which then drives business to do things that deplete the Earth's systems that are ecologically devastating and to externalize the costs of that rather than internalizing them in the business itself. And maximizing consumption means enormous consumption of quantities of stuff that then are um, go obsolete and go into the landfill and go into the ocean. There is a um, there's an island of plastic in the ocean the size of Texas. Um, so maximizing consumption means using um, plastic water bottles. It means um, getting as much stuff as we can get and undoing it. And the Earth doesn't have the atmospheric services to maintain our climate if we continue the maximization of production and consumption of stuff and the transporting of it around the globe. So that's what I mean by that statement. Mm -hmm. Now, it's actually an extraordinarily hopeful statement because it means while we have no choice of whether or not the global economy will change, we have all choice in determining the directions in which it changes. Human beings will decide how we shift economically. I would argue that we must shift in ways that are ecologically sustainable. That is that um, in the future, and business plays a huge role in this, um, Paul Hawken, an ecological conscious business person says in the future, every act of business will be um, carbon neutral, ecologically sustainable. Um, so we will establish rules of the game economically as have human beings throughout human history. And let us establish rules of the game that allow earth to flourish. And secondly, that enable that do not allow vast wealth accumulation on the backs and the suffering of other people. Mm -hmm. So that means we make a profit, but don't maximize it. Maximizing profit means you, you pay someone as low as you can pay them. So in my city, my former city, Seattle, we had 10, six to 10,000 homeless people a night. Some of them worked full-time jobs and were not paid enough to keep a roof over the heads of themselves and their children. That's... Um, partly a product of rules of the game that allow maximizing profit by paying people too little for them to survive or not paying health care. So, uh, so we will establish rules of the game and human intelligence and human moral capacity, and this is part of the role of religion, m must... <laughs> um, establish rules of the game that enable um, 
human needs to be met before wealth accumulation. I was in Norway lecturing, and I had this astounding experience. I was lecturing in Norway, and someone stood up and said, oh, goodness, the Norwegian economy is becoming so much more unjust. Now, you would not believe it. The highest paid CEO makes 14 times what the lowest paid worker makes. <laughs> and this person was outraged at 14 times. I said, wow. In the U.S., it's 450 times. What makes us think that it's acceptable for the highest paid CEO to make 450 times what the lowest paid worker makes if the lowest paid worker then cannot have health care and a roof over her head? So, so that's, that's what I'm talking about when I say we will be sh- through public policy – and citizen advocacy and consumer advocacy, community organizing campaigns, um, individual responsibility, we will be we will be shifting the rules of the game of the economy. How we shift those rules depends upon what we choose to do. Hmm. Before I go to Reverend Delicker, uh, you mentioned Norway, and I want to bring up Norway just briefly. Hmm. Um, because uh, you know they, they are doing some interesting things, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know uh, one of the things they're trying to do with the, with the money is to you know address uh, sh- social and economic mm-hmm. inequity. But a lot of the money that the government brings in is from oil, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so there's there's a paradox, at least for people who believe that, uh, that we need to get away from yep from oil. That's a huge paradox, and it to me it really highlights the complexity of the moral issues involved in climate change and economic justice. And it highlights the intertwining. Uh, One of the theological pieces I would bring in here is just the intertwining of good and evil in human life, that good, good, good things also have wrong aspects. So for instance, I, I remember thinking how the beauty of watching my children play soccer out in the field with the blue sky and the green grass, and then realizing that some of those soccer balls had been made in India by 10-year-olds who lost their eyesight stitching up soccer balls. So this this good and, and evil intertwining. Well, on a macro level, yes, an economy that is doing some really good things with its money in Norway, and I could, I could name some of those good things, is also Norway's new wealth, and it, it's more newly a wealthy nation, is grounded in oil. And so if Norway were to extract all of the oil that it has the capacity to extract, it would be doomsday mm-hmm. um, for, for climate change. I would say that n- many people of conscience are grappling with that in Norway. The church is starting to take stands. I learned when I was there that there are bishops in Norway that are are taking stands against extracting all of the oil that Norway has. So I I think that Norway will be one place where we will can watch the moral dilemma unfolding and I have from my experience in Norway, I have some confidence that Norway will not be extracting all of the oil that it could, but but the complexity of that and the paradoxes entailed in it are are big. Mm. Yes, we uh, the time is flown by. We just have a couple of minutes left, so we we'll give uh, give uh, each of you a, a minute uh, for the fi- final. I want to move to action. So, Reverend Thaliker, first with you. What? What actions do you suggest people take? 
Well, I think part of the amazing thing Cynthia outlines in her book and the perspective that she brings is that our action will not be simple. I was sort of raised to believe that the individual choices I make as a consumer are the most important choices. They're what create my identity uh, and everything. And I think part of the power of Dr. Molabita's perspective is that that's not the end-all be-all, that... Um, that part of my role is just individual daily choices, um, you know, things like taking the bus or riding a bike to work if you're able to do that. But there are much broader, more systemic things that need to be changed as well. And so um, part of the work is advocacy. And, and I think Dr. Molabita has a lot more to say mm-hmm. about that. Um, I think one, one thing I wanted to add about the, the previous conversation uh, regarding the intertwining of good and evil in our action, you know, there's a lot of moral hypocrisy around uh, climate change. We see it a lot in religion as well. And, um, you know, the psychoanalytic perspective on that is you can never fully tell the truth and you can never fully tell a lie. Uh, and so in anything we do, there's going to be ambiguity. There's going to be uh, harm. Uh, and so it's a matter of trying to be open and honest about that and moving forward together with people who are from different perspectives. So uh, 30 seconds at the end here uh, to mm. Dr. Molabita. Mm-hmm. You, you talk about 10 fingers of action. Maybe just list uh, mm. two or three or four of those. Yep. The, uh, the, some of those fingers I see as lifestyle change. Um, secondly, legislative advocacy. That's public policy. Third is economic advocacy. That is through boycotts, consumer choices, shareholder advocacy. Another is building small-scale local business alternatives. Another is consciousness raising and education. Another is worship and prayer that forms people for justice and ecological well-being. Um, Those are just a few of those fingers. I see that humankind really hovers on a precipice in our day, and on one side of it is our current path towards almost unimaginable climate disaster in which those who are least responsible suffer most. But the other side is the great potential before us, the vision that so many hold of a world in which all people have the necessities for life with dignity and... Earth's ecosystems can flourish, and I believe a great calling is before us, and we better step up to the plate. All right, we'll leave it there. Dr. Cynthia Molabita and Reverend Scott Thalaker have joined us, so thank you so much. A statewide service of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSUFM Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, Moab, KUST Price, KCEU, and streaming online at upr.org.